Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Also explore um, tonight as you sit and listen to these words, uh, following your breathing as I speak. Um, so as you're listening to the talk, if you stay connected to your breathing, and I'm not talking about pranayama breathing, where we're kind of like exercising control over the breath, but just listening and feeling your breathing as I speak. And just hearing what it's like to have the bird come through into you with your breathing and have this talk come into you via the breath rather than through your something behind your eyes, whatever that is. Um, and then just letting the Lotus Sutra come to you, just like the breath comes to you, just like sounds come to you. As opposed to, like, there's this text. We've got to, like, study it and get to know it and understand it. And we've been practicing the Lotus Sutra together, or reading the Lotus Sutra together for two months now. And um, maybe instead of just thinking about studying this text, we can just practice the text by really letting it in. And this is hard to do. <laughs> because we have a way of learning where... We're supposed to take something and figure it out. And it's hard to kind of let your defenses down and just sort of receive something. Especially if you have, you know, cultural appropriation radar. And it's kind of like hard to receive something from another tradition and kind of receive a cross-cultural teaching. But from here, as opposed to... Uh, you'll never figure out the lotus and this is the nature of how the mind works, is that every time it's on the verge of dissolving into receptivity or into intimacy, every time your mind is on the verge of waking up to the experience of um, interconnectedness, it shuts it down by creating a formula. And this is just like this ongoing crisis that happens for all of us. And that's why we're, we're practicing, to, to really like feel the, the depth of our life, and then to reinforce that all the time. 
And most people, they don't want to feel the depth of their life. They think, and you might think, I'm so damn miserable myself. I don't want to feel other people's misery. <laughs> I'm so angry and so depressed at the election results last night. <laughs> like, I don't want to feel other people's feelings about this, especially in Alberta. You know? Um, but actually, this strange thing happens in the practice is that when you're settled and there's spaciousness, and then you kind of open up the gates and you allow in others' experience, the mind actually doesn't close in on your misery. The mind actually opens up and we extend out to uh, other beings. And it's like cognition expands and becomes just empathy. Maybe like the base of awareness is just empathy. Maybe what we're cultivating in our practice of attentiveness is empathy. Even though we can't call it empathy, because if I say, you know, sit still and have empathy for the bird, it sets up this kind of subject-object problem. Because we're going at it as opposed to uh, allowing the experience to happen free of a linguistic self. So, anyways, um, I thought I would start uh, with... um, Well, first of all, thank you to Peter Monk for building such a beautiful library at U of T. I don't want to know where he got the money to build that library. And I mean, those students, they've got it good compared to when I went to school. Um, what a beautiful library. So thank you, Peter Monk. I never thought I'd say those words. But I also thought I'd never start a talk with a quote by Milton Friedman. So Milton Friedman, who doesn't have a sentence I agree with, um, who's famous for starting what's now called the Chicago School of Economics, um, Stephen Harper probably really likes Milton Friedman. Anyways, I just thought I'd start with a little passage by Milton Friedman. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When the crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. You hear that? When a crisis occurs... The actions that are taken depend on ideas that happen to be lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function. This is, he's talking about economists. To develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. This strategy has caused some major troubles in uh, uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, in New Orleans, in so many places where the economists had some really good ideas lying around about what they could do uh, during crisis. But another way of reading this is that part of our job as community, as caring citizens, as people who are interested in cultivating awareness and compassion, is just to keep this thing lying around that we're doing. 
so that when a crisis happens at a personal level, when a crisis happens in your own heart, when your phantom city is revealed to be just a phantom city. That's what we explored last week. Um, that you have some tools that have been lying around that you can really use. I remember that in my own life, having practiced for a long time and then going through a period where things were pretty good, and then the next crisis showed up, and suddenly I had a practice that I could use as a kind of net. And your practice can't be done by other people. So even though your practice opens you up to relational life, relationships can't do for you what the practice can do. Maybe even relationships are a solitary path. Maybe to really be fully in relationship is to be able to function in a solitary way. To be a person. And maybe we need to do this by having a depth of practice that allows us to rely on something deeper than just what the economists have to say now, what's in fashion now. So, um, we're living at a time where... um, a lot of the issues that we're uh, reading about and witnessing with our bodies, with our ears, with our intellect, and so on, are converging. Uh, there's a wonderful theorist named Edward O. Wilson who talks about this as the bottleneck. Right? Social issues, ecological issues, you can't separate them anymore, and they're converging. And the stories we have about our lifestyle are uh, changing. And I see this when I talk to people who are in their teens or early 20s. That their ideas of what constitutes a good life are uh, very different than people in their 50s. And they are having to learn how to let go of stories that they've learned and watched on television and so on about what constitutes a good life. And... This, again, like in the Lotus Sutra, is a function of time. Um, In Hinduism, this is called Kali Yuga. We talked about this last week. A Yuga in Hinduism is like a Kalpa in the Lotus Sutra. Uh, In the Lotus Sutra, a Kalpa is a glacial age. So it's said that we're living in Kali Yuga, which is pretty much an age of destruction. So I wanted to read to you some of the earmarks, some of the signs of Kali Yuga, just so that you can tell if you're in Kali Yuga or not. So you can just say out loud, you know, check, (laughs) as I go through the list. Food will become tasteless. Has anybody here been to the metro lately? Crows and ravens will increase in numbers. So this was true until um, West Nile. Girls will be able to have babies at 10 years old. 
Old men will become prematurely youthful. <laughs> Have you heard about this pill? Yes. That allows this to happen in the bedroom? Check. <laughs> Judges and politicians will only listen to the wealthy. Check. Audacity of speech will be the only criteria of veracity. Virtuous deeds will be done only with the object of gaining fame. (laughs) There was an article recently in the New Yorker about this term virtuous. That it's like an old-fashioned term now. It's actually becoming an ironic term. That actually like to call somebody virtuous is actually um, to really downplay their contribution. Oh, they're virtuous. People will be oppressed by heavy taxation. There will be increasing heat and then severe rain. Has anybody been here for six weeks? Six weeks of rain. And lastly, the increase of heat and severe rain will lead to conflict between people. So this is a sign of Kali Yuga. Um, In Buddhism, there was a notion, and there is a notion, that one should always apply Buddhism to Buddhism. So you take the Dharma and you turn it on the Dharma. And every good system has always been able to be self-reflexive in this way. You take psychoanalysis and you psychoanalyze psychoanalysis. Right? So the same is true uh, with the Dharma, with the Buddha's teaching. So that means that Buddhism has always considered itself impermanent. It said that when the Buddha taught, it was a good age. And then it went through a middle age where it spread. And then it goes through an age that Dogen felt we were entering, um, which is the deterioration of the Dharma, where mostly it will be taught by fools. (laughs) And that everybody who was practicing was really just fooling themselves. And Dogen called this the age of Mapo. So we might be in the age of Mapo. And this interested Dogen a lot. And he felt that in the time that he was in, so this is medieval Japan, that uh, everybody was fooling themselves and nobody was really doing good practice. And that's maybe why he went to China. And maybe that's also why he was so obsessed with time. You know, it's like people in the West get deep into the Dharma, they go to India, try to find the root in India. Or they go to, you know, and so in Japan... If you were serious about practice, you go to China. There's no way in Japan people really were understanding the practice. Um, and he became really obsessed with time. Um, and he also felt that at the same time, time is timeless. And we explored this a couple of weeks ago. But time, we explored this sentence, time is passing. And really looked at it from different angles. That time is passing. And that time is passing. This is really important. 
to look at. Um, now, I'm not going to talk as much about time as I really want to right now, um, because I've been preparing for uh, June when we're going to study this text about time. Um, but just to say that what this basically means is that practice is always possible. Practice is always possible. And so practice has to be cultivated so that it's lying around when we really need it. And you might really need it tomorrow. Our country really needs it. Irrespective of how you vote, our country really needs a practice that brings us back to values that recognize interdependence ecological interconnection, relationship. And so this is why we're here, why we're practicing. So, uh, a few years ago, I spent some time with a, a great scholar named Wendy Doniger at her house in Cape Cod, and her best friend is a writer and theologian named Annie Dillard. And uh, I spent some time with them, and Annie told me this really good story where uh, she, t- she takes a friend of hers who's a woman to um, a talk uh, uh, at a local university by a scientist uh, who's studying um, uh, uh, something about the magnetic poles, I believe, and said in this talk, in six billion years, the magnetic poles might switch, and that will be the end of life as we know it. And this woman that Annie brought passed out hearing this, you know, completely, right onto the ground. And then, you know, she finally came to, and then Annie said, what happened? What happened? And she said, well, did you hear what he said in the talk? And Annie said, yeah, that the world could end in six billion years. And she said, oh, I thought he said six million. I love this story. (laughs) So time itself is also a phantom city. And so I've mentioned the term phantom city a lot because that's the chapter we've been studying. But just in case some of you weren't here or some of you forgot, I just want to remind you about the story. I'll try and remember actually without reading it. So... There's a parable about a group that is, uh, has a very good leader, and they're going down this terrible road. It's a road full, it's a, basically a modern road in India. And they're going down this awful road with beasts and potholes and monsoons uh, coming across it. And uh, the group is traveling at, what was it? They traveled 500 Yojanas? How far is a Yojana again? Yeah, the distance an army walks in a day. And 500 Yojanas is pretty far. And they're walking because at the end of the road there is a great treasure. And this is what the leader is telling them. But they get so tired and so worn out that they have to stop. And they start thinking about turning back. Have you ever been on a portage like this in June or July? You're holding a canoe over your head with... Uh, deer flies, you know, and um, 
I have etched in my memory the sound of a deer fly <laughs> in an aluminum canoe that it never will leave my psyche. You know. Um, anyways, so uh, the leader sees that they're all thinking about turning back and getting discouraged. So he says, uh, don't get discouraged. Just right up here, there is a beautiful city with an amazing hotel and vegan food and buffets and... <laughs> Everything there is uh, clean and sprouted. (laughs) And so they lie down, they have a rest. And then in the morning, he says, oh, don't rest here. You have to keep going. This was just something that I constructed out of our imagination. This is a phantom city. And I only created it, I conjured it up out of our collective imagination so that you could keep going. And then we learn that this parable is about nirvana. That the Buddha taught that there is nirvana, which is the extinguishing of one's self-centeredness. But that's not true. It's true in the sense that it keeps you going towards the jewel, but the peace of nirvana is a phantom city. The peace of nirvana is a phantom city. It's not that it was bad, but that it was a construct. It was a formula to get you on the path. Some of you needed to hear that the goal of meditation practice is to be fully enlightened. And that's what you needed to do. All of those Goenka retreats. Just to realize that the goal is a phantom. I hope this is not being recorded. (laughs) and then um, this begs the question well what what is what's the road Mm -hmm. the road is your life right and it's heading towards the lotus sutra which still has not even been preached so this road is heading towards what is the lotus sutra it's this it's heading towards reality And maybe the problem is, is that reality is sitting right in front of our face the whole time. But we need these formulas to see something else, only to have that plug pulled, so we can be back in reality, back on the ground. In taxes and elections. You might not like taxes and elections, but this is a really good way to get grounded. Oh yeah, there's other people. (laughs) you know this weekend I helped my sister move and she had some things out in the suburbs where I I hardly ever go north of Bloor the suburbs for me started DuPont Street (laughs) because my bike can't get up that hill and uh, so it's like Casaloma is like might as well be in England (laughs) and so I was in the suburbs with her and I noticed like There's not a single NDP sign Mm -hmm. anywhere in the neighborhoods that I was driving through for hours, Mm -hmm. you know. And I had this thought, oh, other people, (laughs) you know. Not that I voted NDP necessarily, but uh, other people, you know. And, um, And in a way, what the Lotus Sutra is reminding us is that nirvana that you are aiming for in your practice for you to be enlightened, you needed that to get in the door. If somebody comes in the door here and they say, 
I'm here because I want to wake up to serve all sentient beings. I'll like wonder about them a little. You know? I'll try to like, what's going on in your your heart, in your heart. But then we we open up in our heart and we realize, oh, there there is something much. There's a deeper treasure here, and it includes other people. It includes other people. So, um, you had some homework. The homework. We lay around a lot last week. We actually literally lay down together on the floor, and we did a little exercise where I asked you to talk with your partner about a time in your life where you realized that something you were deep into actually was just a phantom city. And the second part was to realize, how did you realize that? Often someone else pulls the plug. You're fired. Yeah? I'm leaving. Or they die. And it's a deep wound. And usually we then blame them. We blame them for wrecking our phantom city. But it was a blessing. Wasn't it? It was a blessing. But we can't see it because we're still like so mad at them for wrecking our plans. And then I wanted you to consider, what would happen if that was never pierced? And you were still there. And maybe that's actually worse. <laughs> right? That, that could really be worse. So I just wanted to read you uh, something. Um, And then I want to talk together about this. So, um, this is... uh, I'm going to say that this is the Bodhisattva vow. But it's actually written by Emmanuel Levinas. Listen carefully, because there's a lot in it. If you get this, this is the whole teaching of the Dharma. The other... So the other meaning... Another person... You could put an animal in there, too. Mm -hmm. The other is the sole being I can wish to kill. I can wish. And yet this power is quite the contrary of power. The triumph of this power is its defeat of power. The triumph of this power, so this is the power to kill, is to defeat power. At the very moment when my power to kill realizes itself, the other has escaped me. I have not looked him in the face. I have not encountered his face. The temptation of total negation, this is the presence of the face. Do you remember we were talking about this? but how one of the most generous things you can do is to give someone your face. Now we're talking about it from the other direction. He continues. To be in relation with the other face to face is to be unable to kill. To be in relationship with the other face to face 
is to be unable to kill. It is also the situation of discourse. Or we could say communication. Okay? To be with the other face to face is to be unable to kill, and this is the space that opens up for discourse. And not just discourse between the two of you, but for the public to look in and also have something to say. Now, we could go here into a discussion about Osama bin Laden. But we can also stay connected, too, with the person involved in pulling the plug on your phantom city. Because when someone pulls the plug on something we're really invested in, they become the scapegoat for our shadow. Okay? In the beginning of the next chapter of the Lotus Sutra, for example, which is another case of misogyny in the text, uh, Purna has an awakening, and the Buddha says, the, the, the field that you awaken to will be so wonderful, there will be no women there. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment in the text. Think about this. Being awake and there being no women. Because women, you know, it's just, it's so much trouble. You know? All the emotions and like, you know, Patabi Joyce used to also say, women's holidays? So that's like when women are menstruating, you're saying, you shouldn't practice just women's holidays. Uh, he also used to say, woman practicing yoga long time, getting man body. <laughs> um, so, you know, pretty much in every monastic tradition, uh, you know, you're aspiring for a life free of women. And um, not only free of women, but for Purna also, um, uh, people will be born um, through transformation, not through vaginas. Because when you come through a vagina, it's like painful for the vagina. It's like messy. There's, you know, mucus and there's blood and there's all kinds of stuff. There's this placenta nobody knows. You eat it, you bury it, you freeze it, you throw it out. And it's just really, and then not only that, you have to have like a relationship, you know. So uh, this is a great example of men projecting their own discomfort and intolerance of the messy and the body onto women. And, you know, if I just get rid of them, then, like, things will be clean, you know? And we can, you know, run a country and do better business (laughs) if there were just, like, fewer. Uh, And, you know, women are a real problem, you know? So uh, this is a great example, too, of the other, right? So... The face that I'm in relationship to is not really the face. Osama bin Laden is not Osama bin Laden. He's a representation. right? And so I like to represent different faces in different ways and color different faces in different ways so that I can have my way. And it's easy when you want your way to just get other people out of the way for a while. you know. And this happens. I, I'm going ahead, but this happens in the next section, unfortunately, in the Lotus Sutra, a text we want to hold up and idealize, and yet has these problems with women and animals. 
But anyways. Um, back to the Phantom City. When someone pulls the plug on what you've been really invested in, it's so easy to blame them. So I asked you to get together with a partner this past week and just to explore together how this feel, how this, what this is like in your life. It's so easy to talk about the psychology of scapegoat, you know, but actually to feel this, where it's like, oh, my phantom city came up. I saw the phantom, and it was their fault for making that happen. So I'd love to hear from some people about how that went. And you can't be right or wrong, or you can't really figure these things out in your life, so don't be shy about not being clever or something. So I'd like to hear from a couple people. Mina and I talked last night, and one of the things I noticed when I was thinking on this and meditating on it is how many of them there have been. (laughs) You know, it's not just once that it happens in a lifetime. For me, it's been many times. Mm -hmm. And although they were different, um, most of the time it always turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And something to be grateful for in retrospect, even though at the time I was, you know, insanely angry and jealous and Mm -hmm. all of those really Mm -hmm. ugly things that it brought out in me. (laughs) That they caused. That they caused, (laughs) Someone else? Monica? I had the, the same thought that there were there are many, many, many. It seems like uh, the more I look into it, it's, it's almost like uh, every moment could be like that in, in a way. Um, but, but the blessing that that is brought because of when you realize, you know, as you, you have the really negative feelings, maybe blaming, and then some time passes, and then you get the benefits of being in the new space, in the bigger arena mm-hmm. and not stuck and then if you're really lucky you can, I get, you can even see oh yeah I was really really stuck mm-hmm. and that person actually helped me to get out of that so to me that it felt like it was yeah big blessing circle so it turned to me it started to feel like that the what I was considering negative feelings or negative mm-hmm. situations were actually maybe actually the positive ones mm-hmm. you know they started to you know Looks like the the, yeah. the harsh things are actually the things I need. Mm. And this one with my partner, and we said, and she, I think you said it. She said, and she says, well, I haven't actually gone to the point where I'm asking for those things to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we were appreciating the fact that you know yeah. that what seems so negative and harsh and terrible actually is sort of seems like the only way we can get to the yeah. the newness. Yeah. Yeah, like imagine if it all turned out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else? Be nice to hear from a man body. Yes, a man body. Jesse. Um, I think each relationship that I just realized, like, probably since high school and then university, like, different partners, each relationship. 
in retrospect, seems like a phantom city because you started discussing with your partner and you're like, oh, I don't think I was in that same relationship. Like, it's like, it's like two opposite things were happening. I was in one city and they were in a totally different <laughs> But um, I think my way with coping, it comes back to like these new ideas that I have lying around from like my yoga practice and I'm, I'm able to manage my emotion and, and see it see that their city is like that there maybe was two different cities yeah. and that's okay. Mm. Yeah. Cass and Cass. That's so good. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, double cast. Yeah. We double cast and how it parallels to the eight stages of monastic uh, Uh life that we talked earlier. That idea of relationship um, and the betrayal and uh, and, um, it just even fascinates me to think how, how relationships get past that betrayal. the people that we've actually kept, up, kept working yeah. through the situation we've actually worked through yeah. to, to boredom. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good self-help one, from betrayal to boredom. <laughs> <laughs> and back again. <laughs> Cass and Cass might have something. <laughs> I can see it at Hollyhock right now. You know. Cass and Cass, the power of betrayal. Great. Um, one of the things that Milton Friedman's saying in this passage about having things lying around that connects with what Levinas is saying is that there are certain parts of our culture, but there are certain parts of our psyche that we underrepresent. There are certain parts in all of us that we don't want to give a face, or they have a face that we don't want to integrate. And so we kill them. And we kill them just by not looking at their face. We walk down the road and we see the faces we want to see, literally. Literally, we do this. I drive out into the suburbs and I see what I want to see. I don't see people there trying to manage a family, trying to pay their mortgage. I only see what sign is on their lawn. Mm -hmm. And so I do a disservice to myself because that shuts out that same part of me that can connect with that person. That's also in me. That's also in you. And this is the heart of what the Lotus Sutra is trying to point out over and over again. That the faces that you continually underrepresent creates in you the capacity to kill. The capacity to kill. But when you look at the face, it changes that whole dynamic. And it takes so much courage to look at that face. We all have places in us, and we all have people in our lives that we can't acknowledge. <laughs> You know, it's just too painful. And so all we have to do with our practice is just to know that you can't acknowledge it. And then you give it a face. This is something, I mean, 
How many of you have pain that you feel sometimes from a situation or a circumstance that like you've been working with a long time, but it's still just too painful? And maybe you have some ideal from some therapist that said, oh, well, one day you'll work that out and you'll be happy, you know. But it's just still so painful. So the tendency just to keep kind of shutting it out. But if you can just give that pain that you can't fully comprehend a face, then even not being able to comprehend it allows you to relate to it. So you don't kill yourself. Because it's not really the other you're killing. It's a piece of you. It's a piece of yourself. And this goes by the name of intimacy or ecological debt or whatever term you want to use. But it's about recognizing the way we compartmentalize the way we split and the power it gives us and that power is the dangerous part of the phantom city the power to dominate and we all have it in us we all have it in us (coughs) and that's why this practice is so good because it softens you and then even when you're dominating that will come to an end because someone will screw it up eventually then you have the soft parts around that you can rely on. So, um, any comments or questions before we... Uh, I really wanted to get to the next part of it, but I think I might stop here. I think people, everyone sort of made reference to relationships as being the phantom city, but I think... Uh-huh can also be just aspirations you have for yourself and things you've worked towards for a really long time and you have all these yeah. grandiose notions of what it's going to be like to achieve this yeah. certain goal and then it's such a disappointment when you actually do. Yeah. Or you just don't feel this flood of elation or anything. It's yeah. just like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> what yeah. am I going to do next? <laughs> yeah. but you've kind of created this big yeah. illusion about it to yeah. yourself. There's this wonderful commentary analysis that uh, who's the is the comedian Chris Rock mm-hmm. is that the comedian yeah mm-hmm. Chris Rock has about like the difference between having a job or a career mm-hmm. and like just how lowly and pathetic it is to have a job these days because everyone wants a career you know I'm not going to Actually, I, I couldn't even speak how he speaks, but, you know, basically you get the idea, you know? And, um, you know, so many of us are invested in, like, trying to not have a job and to really have a career. It's great to have a career, you know? And um, at the same time, um, the, and the way he defines it is in terms of time. So people who have a job always have this experience that time's going too slow, and people who have a career never have enough time. <laughs> you know, when you have a career, there's never enough time to, to cultivate your career. And when you have a job, it's like you just can't wait for the punch the clock. You know? um, I haven't figured out where I fall in there yet. But, um, but you know, a career is really one way. That, you know, we've set phantom cities up for ourselves and do it for our children. Yeah, and then you just keep perpetuating it. Yeah. 
anything that we imagine is going to give us peace in the future, we set up as a phantom city, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't it really easy to set up the practice as a phantom city? Oh, well, this is what's being critiqued here, actually, at the bottom is, is, you know, that there were these, there were the, the uh, Shravakas, the voice, here, the three vehicles, there's the Shravakas, there's the Prajeka Buddhas, the people who wake up on their own, and there's the Arhats, the perfected being. And all of those three vehicles are all different forms of practice that those people are engaged in. And those were all phantom cities. It's all held, the Buddha says, here, by the Lotus Sutra, which, is the, which uh, absorbs all of the teachings, all of the paths. I don't want to get to the punchline of that. But, but another way of thinking about this is that we think we do yoga and meditation practice to get calm and reduce stress and wake up, right? Those practices are going to you know, get us calm. But what the Lotus Sutra is saying is that really what the practice is is not about the postures and the sitting and so on. It's about seeing how reality is the deepest agent of change. That, that, that the, the fluidity, the impermanence of reality is what heals you. That's what that road is heading towards. It's like saying, how much reality can you take? Okay, well, if you can only take this much, then you're a Shravaka. And if you can only take this much, you're a Prajeka Buddha. But a Bodhisattva is somebody who can take reality. They can handle it. And so enlightenment for a Bodhisattva is the ultimate cognitive dissonance between being free and being awake and feeling others. The intensity of that dissonance is the bodhisattva path. On the one hand, to do what you can to be free and awake and simultaneously to feel the pain of others and to have their face in your face in your heart. This is the formula for the... Uh, we'll try it first, and then... You know. I'll, I'll like, what the image that keeps coming to me is this concept of being in that house of mirrors at the CNE or something, where uh-huh. it just keeps yeah. reflecting back at you uh-huh. the same thing mm-hmm. again and again and again. Uh-huh. So, like, everything is a phantom city. Sure. Everything is a phantom city except relationship. I remember having this uh, uh, debate once with a teacher named Trudy Goodman. Everything's empty. Everything's empty. She said, yeah, everything's empty except relationship. Everything's empty of thingness because everything's interconnected. So, you can meditate on that. <laughs> um, and, and another way of saying it, you know, it's like it's bad enough getting what you don't want. It, like, but the worst thing is like, like seeing that what you wanted isn't what you wanted. 
you know. Mm-hmm. It's like we can all handle getting stuff that we don't want. But then, like, sometimes to see that the thing that you thought you really wanted isn't really what you wanted. But you were going after it like you really wanted. Nirvana. I want nirvana. And then you get... Now, these are also critique of people who went after nirvana and got it. So be careful here if you're thinking, oh, I don't need to do the nirvana thing. I'm not into the nirvana path. I'm just going to, you know, um, I don't know. Whatever. Lie around and do Pilates or whatever. But actually, the, the nirvana path, these are, he's talking to people who reach nirvana. And then they reach nirvana. And then they heard these teachings in the Lotus Sutra. And all these arhats who hit nirvana, they're all going like, shit, why didn't you tell us this earlier? Because, like, nirvana's not so great. And then the Buddha is saying, well, I didn't want, I couldn't tell you earlier because that wouldn't be skillful means. That wouldn't be a skillful way of working with you. You needed to get to nirvana. But don't worry. It's not a bad thing. Don't make nirvana a bad thing. A lot of people really want what you've got. You're a fully enlightened being. But you're not including others. You know, so now we're really going to wake up. That nirvana thing was just good for a while. And now let's really see what's there. What's the real, what's the real deal? And so this is, this is where it gets exciting. And it's going to get more exciting next week because Purna, who uh, realizes that he's going to wake up to a place where there's no women, um, is <laughs> going to do a dance. Which is just the best. Like, you don't get dancing in sutras. It's the best part about Buddhism hitting China. So you get dancing. They didn't, the monks don't dance in India. It's all so solemn and, you know, so dour, you know? And um, when Buddhism hits Afghanistan and China, then we get dancing. And then it gets really good. And raining, flat raining is good too. In the text. <laughs> so let's let's finish chanting. And then we'll we'll share a nice nice meal together.